I, I think that, you know, the idea of faith, Don, you know, that's one mm. of the things that we, we wanted to talk about, that you yeah. wanted to specifically talk with me about. And yeah. we actually, we've done some Zooms and we've talked a little bit and we found that we kind of have a little bit of parallels in our faith journeys mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, you know, one of the most fascinating thing about during the research of this book, this actually played a major role in you regaining your faith. Now, the, the just, research that I did for it, yeah. Give yeah. us a little bit about your background with your faith and then the period of time where you wandered from it mm -hmm. and then the process of coming back to it. Okay, sure. All right. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll actually tell you some things about my faith journey. I, I've talked about my faith journey in several different venues before. Um, and, you know, several podcasts. Um, but um, I'm actually going to tell you some things that I haven't talked about in any of them. Okay. Um, because there are ways that my faith journey um, as a Latter-day Saint intersects with more traditional Christianity. Mm -hmm. And since you are a an evangelical Christian mm -hmm. doing, you know, research and book reviews on the restoration um this that's fat that fascinates me for one thing and it seems like a good um perfect setting to talk about some of those things so um i came from unlike a lot of people who do mormon history um my family doesn't have deep roots in the church excuse me no like pioneer ancestors or anything like that my pioneers were my parents okay. right they mm -hmm. Um, they were both converts, and um, like we started out on the East Coast. Uh, my mom had grown up uh, Southern Baptist, and when she was like um, nine or ten years old, she answered an altar call in her church, right, and went okay. up and accepted Jesus as her Born Savior in her heart. Right? Okay. And um, like several years later, um, but there were things about the churches that she went to that didn't sit right with her. Her her dad was actually dying of emphysema and couldn't work, and so the family was poor. And, um, like, when that uh, collection plate would go around, she could tell how much it, it pained him, right, to not be able to put anything in. And um, so she, she decided she didn't believe in the collection plate, right? And she, uh, she wondered a lot about, well, what about people who have never heard of Jesus? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what would happen to them? She thought, you know, God in his mercy, right? Our Heavenly Father would, would surely do something yeah. for them, you know? And so, you know, when she was about 19 or 20, and, uh, you know, two Latter-day Saint missionaries showed up, you know, tracked it, tracked it out her and her sister, uh, uh, you know, she responded very favorably to this, right? Mm. She she embraced it. She would always say, uh, um, you know, years later, uh, like many years later, right, like when I was grown, uh, this was all before I was born, um, uh, but she would say when I was grown, like emphatically, like, you know, I, I didn't get my relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus from the church. Like, I... I, I brought that in with me, oh, you know. Wow. Um, and um, I, um, 
but I grew up, um, you know, my first 12 years out in, in the mission field, right, outside of Utah. Mm -hmm. um, and then right when I turned 13, uh, we moved to Utah. I, um, I became really interested in church history as a result of things that I encountered, um, partly as a result of things I encountered in Utah, right, friends that I made who were into interesting things um, and strange things, the Adam-God theory, right? So my, my very first Mormon history project was studying the origins and demise of the Adam-God theory. I was 17 and 18 years old at the time, right? But that's when I first showed up at the, the church archives, which was then in the big high-rise church office building, right? And I would go there about um, four out of five days a week after school and and longer during the summer. Um, and um, yeah, so I started doing, looking at the original sources and trying to figure some things out for myself. I had, um, I had a sort of spiritual awakening a little before that when I was like 15 and that was part of why I got so into um, uh, church history. Like we actually were studying the New Testament and seminary and there were things in there that just really connected for me, resonated for me. And so I started turning more of my attention to spiritual things. But when I was 17, um, we had a family home evening one day. And uh, for our activity, my dad took us all to Deseret Book and offered to buy us each a book, whatever book we wanted. And there in the you know, general authority section between Boyd K. Packer and Joseph Fielding Smith was this book by B. H. Roberts called Studies of the Book of Mormon. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You familiar? Oh, very okay. much so. Love that book. <laughs> so B. H. Roberts says for those who don't know, Studies of the Book of Mormon was never intended to be published. It wasn't published for over half a century after his death. Um, it was a sort of devil's advocate case against the Book of Mormon to, so that Latter-day Saint scholars could figure out how to overcome these objections to the Book of Mormon's historicity before outsiders, critics, started bringing these objections, right, themselves. And so this book did not belong in Deseret. Somebody at Deseret didn't realize, it was published by the University of Illinois. Um, somebody at Deseret just saw, oh, they're publishing a new book by B.H. Roberts. Oh he was a general authority, right? Like... You know, I knew who this guy was, yeah. so I like this looked fascinating. I bought it, I took it home, I started reading, and you know, it was just uh, just like bowled me over, yeah. right? Um, if this had been like anti Mormon literature, right, which they had some of in the local library, I would have had my guard up when I looked at it, but this is B.H. Roberts, yeah. right? And so I read, and it just threw everything up in the air for me. Up until that time, you know, um, I had no more doubted the existence of Nephi than I had of George Washington. You know, the one was just as real to me as the other. And there, you know, I, I, I didn't have questions, you know, uh, in that regard. And uh, suddenly that was all thrown open. And, um, you know, and then I started questioning other things. Well, what about Christ? What about God? What about life after death? You know, I, I just wasn't sure uh, 
on any of this. And so I was, I became sort of semi-agnostic for a little while, but it was just through sort of a, like, through sheer will that I didn't actually become agnostic. I stayed just a little on the side of belief, you know. And um, after a while, I was able to, just a matter of months, I think, was able to kind of calm down a lot of my questions and have things make a little more sense to me. Um, I ended up going um, out of my mission, uh, uh, and I was called to uh, Houston, Texas, so Bible Belt. And um, so I had not encountered a lot of... um, evangelical Christians, like, in a context, at least, where we would talk about faith, you know, and um, then I did, right, very much, and um, I, uh, I remember, um, you know, talking with people about grace and works, and talking with people about being saved, you know, and um, I actually... I was reading very intently in um, various scriptures, including the Doctrine and Covenants, and I was reading in, um, at some point, I don't know when I made this connection, I think it was actually before my mission, but I'm not sure, but I remember we were talking with an investigator once, and she asked us, like, so when you die, do you know that you will go to heaven, right? Well, so... For people who are familiar with DNC 76, or maybe even if there any anybody watching isn't, right? This is like a vision Joseph Smith has of three degrees of glory or three heavens, right? The the celestial, the highest, the terrestrial, and then the telestial. Um, so I noticed at some point that in the um, telestial, um, I put that on airplane mode, but I guess it alarm there. So um, in the um, I noticed in DNC 76 that um, for the um, celestial people who go to the celestial kingdom, it said, These also shall bow the knee and confess with their tongues that um, Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, or whatever, you know, something like this. And I correlated that with in the New Testament, where it said, You know, if you will, like, I can't remember the exact words now, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ, then you shall be saved. Mm -hmm. And so, as I understood, the three heavens, or the degrees of glory, in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's not just that everybody gets saved just because everybody gets saved, ultimately, from, from eternal punishment, right? It's because, ultimately, basically everybody accepts Christ, whether they accept Christ in this life or in the next, right? So people who go to the celestial kingdom, they're going to heaven. They're going to one of the heavens. They're not going to a place of punishment. But they're going, and the reason, and the reason that they're ultimately going there is that in the end, they really did accept Jesus. Yeah. So I remember talking with this woman about like being saved and so on. And as far as I understood, I was saved because I've accepted Christ. You know, so um, I was going to be in, in any case, in one of the three kingdoms within heaven, right? Um, I remember also reading um, in uh, 
2 Nephi 25, I think it's 2 Nephi 25, 23, um, you know, where it says, Nephi says, uh, for as by grace we are saved after all we can do. You know, in the traditional interpretation, I'd heard this interpretation when I was growing up, um, this is taken by, this is used by Latter-day Saints in, like, debates with, like, evangelical Christians and so on, saying, well, we have scripture that says, you know, like, we have to do everything that we can, and then, like, grace makes up the difference, right? Now, um, at some point, um, fairly early, and again, I can't remember if it was in high school or if it was on my mission or what, but I realized that that's not what that passage is saying at all. That actually, if you look at that passage in its context, right, Nephi is emphasizing grace there. He's not trying to emphasize works. The whole surrounding passage is saying it's all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then he says, for it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. So later, I started looking up uses of the phrase after all we can do, okay, in databases, um, and most recently, like in Google Books, right? And if you look for the phrase, uh, after all we can do, in Justice Smith's time period, it's used in a variety of things, mostly in religious literature, and it's all, it always means in spite of what we can do. It doesn't mean chronologically after what we can do. So, and that's, that's how I had come to read it, right? That it's saying, even, even with everything that we can do or might do or whatever, it's still actually by grace that we're saved. Okay. That's what that's saying. And so, um, there are places where Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians butt heads a lot, but where I don't. I'm not actually seeing fully why, you know. Um, there, similarly, um, in the Book of Mormon, there are a number of places where it uh, uses the phrase uh, relying wholly upon the merits of Christ. And um, in fact, in uh, Moroni, in the Book of Moroni, so the Book of Moroni, if you look at it, it's really like the first church handbook of instructions. Okay? It tells, here's how you, here's who the officers of the church are, the different offices, right? Here's how you do ordinations, here's how you do the sacrament, here are the prayers, right? Here's how you run the church, here's what church meetings are for, here's what you do in them, here's, here's you keep the names of the people who are baptized, and, and so on. And it says in Moroni 6 um, that the names of those who were baptized, their names were taken, that they might be remembered and nourished with the good word of God, um, like keeping them something continually, <laughs> relying wholly upon, and then relying wholly upon the merits of Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's saying, why do we have church? Why do we go to church? Well, partly to keep us relying completely on Christ's merits, which isn't necessarily what we always do at church, mm-hmm. but it's saying there that that's what we're supposed to be doing at church, mm-hmm. right? And um, anyway, so, and I'll come back to, uh, well, actually, maybe I'll say a couple of things more right now about okay. this evangelical Larry Saint sort of connection. Mm-hmm. 
and then back to my my story of like losing faith yeah. and then like regaining faith right um so one of the people that i met right after my mission as i as soon as i was done with my mission i picked up my archival research and church history again and one of the people i met um pretty soon thereafter was mike marquardt um and uh he just uh he's just a, he's just a fantastic guy um and um, you know he'd done he's done a lot of research, but he had me over to his house a couple times, and we just talked about Mormon history stuff. And I remember being a little shocked because in my mind, at first I saw him as kind of an anti-Mormon, right? And um, uh, I um, actually asked him something about. He told me some of his story. I guess he had. Um, he was Christian, he was not Latter-day Saint, he married someone who was Latter-day Saint, you know, back in like the 60s or whenever. Um, he ended up joining the Latter-day Saint church, right? And then he like did this research and he like lost his belief in like the Book of Abraham, the history of the Book of Mormon, various things about Joseph Smith. And I asked him, I remember asking him, because it was clear from his story that he was like, still in the church. Like I said, so you like you left the church? And he's like, no, I didn't leave the church. And I was like, well, you didn't leave the church? And he's like, no. I was like, well, why didn't, why didn't you leave the church then? He said, well, it was my church. And you don't just leave your church because it has problems, <laughs> you know, um, which I just found fascinating, right? Now he got kicked out of the church, right? Uh, he left the church involuntarily. But um, I uh, also, a couple times I went over to... Um, Gerald and Sandra Tanner's um, place, their their bookstore. By this time, I think I was at BYU. Um, and, um, like, usually Sandra, you know, would be sitting out front, and so I had some interesting conversations with her. I actually found from both what I read and then confirmed from talking with her that when Sandra had her initial, like, salvation experience, right, she still believed oh. in Joseph Smith. She believed in the Book of Mormon. So did Gerald, right? In their early years of publishing, you know, things critical of the LDS Church, they believed in certain foundational teachings, right, and foundational scripture of the church. Well, one of these times, uh, this fascinated me, right? One of these times when I was over there, Gerald was never the one sitting out front. It was always Sandra. But one of these times... Um, I you have to understand, I still had to a great extent like this image of like the evangelical like anti-Mormon like they must be like these sort of dark figures right even though I'd met Sandra a couple times you know and I knew Mike well Gerald walked out and just had one of the saintliest looking faces that I've ever seen in my life he mm. just looked like his face was like etched with kindness and he just said hello to me and they said something, talked for a second with Sandra, and then he went back to researching or whatever. Um, so anyway, this sort of fascinating, like, sort of little connections with evangelical Christians, including critics, right, of the uh, church. Um, so um, I continued my uh, Mormon history research, and... Um, I, um, you know, I, I kind of gradually 
my, my beliefs were shifting. Now I was trying to, I was encountering more and more evidence in my research and, you know, unlike when you read somebody else's book, when you read somebody else's book, they've sort of digested it all, integrated it all for you intellectually and spiritually, right? And then you can just sort of take from it their perspective on it, right? But when you're doing your own original research in the sources, you know, it, the weight of falling, the weight of... Uh, piecing everything together, making sense of it intellectually and spiritually, mm -hmm. right? It falls all on you, mm. right? And I was making a lot of sense of things intellectually. I was able to, I was changing some of my perspectives to encompass more and more information. And I mostly was studying Joseph Smith, sort of, I, I like to say I do all things Joseph Smith, right? Mm. But especially the earlier stuff, like 1820s. Um, and uh, increasingly, there was a divergence between like the standard narrative of church history that I'd been told and what I was finding, mm -hmm. you know. And so, eventually, that narrative got to a that that divergence got to a point where it things fell apart for me. Right, my faith just kind of it had sort of a couple final supports, and then it just those were sort of knocked out from under it and it imploded. Right? And um, so I stopped believing. I thought that Joseph Smith was probably like a pious fraud. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually continued going to church for a few years after that. I thought that the church was a good thing. You know, my growing up experience had been a wonderful one. Um, and... Um, but then I became kind of just increasingly disillusioned um, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, uh, but, but both sort of emotionally disaffected and uh, intellectually. And I started having more and more doubts about even more fundamental things like God, okay. you know. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, I mean, not ultimately, because this journey goes on after that, but at, but at one point, I, I just finally stopped going to church, uh, stopped considering myself a Latter-day Saint uh, at all, and then um, I, uh, I ended up, you know, um, not believing in God, and that was partly because at the time I didn't think I saw enough evidence for God, and because of the problem of suffering, especially the sufferings of children, I just trying to reconcile that with God's goodness. Um, and so I decided I was going to leave the church uh, officially. Uh, I felt that because I was at this point I was an atheist and I, I still I had a desire to contribute to the, the Latter-day Saint community, but I didn't know how that was actually going to be possible. I thought the kinds of things that I'm finding in my research, at least the way that I was seeing them, they were not going to be contributions, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so uh, I thought, I have nothing to offer to the church. There's no place for me. So I left. I had my name removed from the records of the church. When I got the that putting, going through that process felt liberating until I got the letter actually saying that I wasn't a member of the church. Oh. And then actually I felt devastated. Really? I felt sad. Yeah, I thought, 
this is the only community, real yeah. community that I've ever known in my life. And I left, yeah. you know, and I thought about my baptism when I was eight. And I thought I did that because I wanted to follow Jesus. And even though now I was an atheist, I thought like, why would I want to go back on that? <laughs> you know, and so, but I thought, well, what's done is done. You know, like, uh, um, you can, if you're already a member of the church and you lose your faith, you can stay. But if you want to, like, join the church, they kind of want you to believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, that, and that, that would be a problem, right? Yeah. And so um, I um, sort of began my own kind of personal wandering in the wilderness. And um, I uh, was very involved in, like, the ex-Mormon community in various okay. ways. Um, but I... Um, ended up, and each of these is like its own whole story, so I won't really tell this part, I'll just sort of say it, but like I, I ended up um, coming to believe in God again, um, and it was just totally, completely unexpected for me. Really? Uh-huh. Um, well, so can it, we just go back a little bit? I just, yeah, what sure. was your, not spiritually, but emotionally and mentally, once you got that letter and you were devastated, and then you were in the ex-Mormon community. I was talking to my friend Christopher Thomas yesterday, yeah. and I told him how um, I was an atheist for a while. Oh, yeah. And I felt like I lost a friend. <laughs> and... And God, yeah. I mean, like a really good friend. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 And, um, and and that just, that the void was there for a very, very long time. Yeah. It was, it was that kind of a similar thing for you? Yeah, so, so that for me was distinct from, specifically, from, from how I felt leaving the church, but I had that too. Like, I, I actually, I had kind of forgotten about this until someone reminded me of it several years later. Um, I uh, had talked to an in-law during the time after I had left the church and I was an atheist, and I had been telling her about how like, I missed Heavenly Father, right? Yeah. Like, I, I remembered, like, having, like, this, um, this depth of feeling, right, toward Heavenly Father. And like you said, like a, like a dear, beautiful friend, right? And then that, that was gone, and, like, and it seemed like I was just, like, on my own in life. I was on my own in the world, you know? Without that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So you know, we were very similar. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a it's a process of you know, we're going through. And so, you you lost your friend, and then um, another terrible thing that happens when you stop believing is uh, everybody you know who has died, they die again, yeah. because the first time they died. You thought they were still there, right? They were they were gone from here, but they were sort of living somewhere else. Yeah. And then when you lose your faith, right, yeah. that means like you think back suddenly all those people who died, right? Like no, like they've died again for good, yep. you know. And that oh that was, yeah, that was horrible. Yeah. So that you know, and that's what I think believers out there who haven't. You know, you need to be more sympathetic towards atheists, because it is a spiritual journey, right? Just because you lost your faith in God doesn't mean that's that's not oh, a spiritual yeah. journey. Right. 
And so uh, it can be very deeply effective. Now, a lot of you, you're exposed to the angry atheist because that's at the phase that they're at, right? And then, but you don't understand that there's also a grieving atheist. Yeah. And they can't get comfort, right? Because not the way they could before, right? Right. And so you need to understand that, you know, the atheists, uh, show them some, show them a little more love, you know, don't bash on, on them all the time, because I, I love, I love atheists, yeah. you know, because yeah. I've been there, yeah. and I know yeah. they have good reason to be there. Yeah. That's the way I see it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them, because, a lot of it was because they read the Bible, you know, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they actually read it where a lot of the congregants haven't, and they grappled with the questions, and they wrestled with God, mm-hmm. right, which is something I think God wants us to do anyhow, right? right. It's, it's very scriptural to do that. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm, I just want to hear how God got back into your life. Okay. So, so as I go into talking about regaining my faith in God, um, I would actually like to say a little bit more sort of piggybacking on what you were saying about sort of, um, sort of a more empathetic view, maybe, of atheists, okay? So um, it was a really wrenching thing for me to lose my faith for a host of different reasons, and I really kind of did not know what to do with the fact that I had lost my faith. So um, I, um, I saw my Mormon history research. I had invested so much in it, and I was good at it, right? I was finding things. I invested like thousands of hours into it. And so to me, it seemed like my life's work. But then I thought, if the church is a good thing and my work undermines the church, my life's work undermines the church, is my life's work a good thing or a bad thing? How can your life's work be a bad thing? Like, can I just not publish my work? But then, like, what's the point if I don't do something with it, Mm -hmm. right? And I, I felt very confused. And so I actually went through a brief new atheist phase because right when I was at that point in my thinking... I read Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, yeah, and he's that. an extremely good writer. Very good writer. Very yeah. good writer. I'm envious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he um, he makes this argument, and this is, you know, 9-11 wasn't that many years mm-hmm. before this, right? And he made this argument that, like, if humankind ever destroys itself, it will probably be because of religion, right? Like, radical, like, fanatical religious ideas. Well... That seems very realistic, and it seemed especially realistic in the shadow of 9-11, right? And so that, and he wrote it, he wrote very cogently, very forcefully, and it made me think, yeah, he's right. And so what he argues is religion is a luxury that humankind can no longer afford in the age of weapons of mass destruction. So I was sort of primed to hear this Mm -hmm. because I was thinking... I've got this life's work. It undermines faith yep. here. But like, what's the point of my life's work if it's doing something bad? And he came along and yep. he was telling me, no, 
your life's work is doing something good, right? He wasn't telling me this directly, but through his book, right? No, your life's work is good because religion needs to be undermined, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, yes. So, you know, my life, my my work is meaningful, but I still wrestled inside with like, I thought, okay, maybe it's good for the long run, but what about like people whose child is, has just died or something? Like it's, it's a good thing to like convince them that like no sorry you're never going to see your kid again or you know like i mean i just so i still felt torn and within several months within a year after reading that book i no longer agreed with myself or sam harris on that right i thought no actually religion i i was reading studies about religion's effect on health Mm -hmm. mental health and so on and at first i was like well this study they probably didn't just control for this, mm-hmm. you know, this study was showing that religion was good for you and like, yeah. You know. But as the weight of the study started to pile up, I thought, oh, come on. I stopped believing in religion because I thought the evidence was against religion. Now that I see evidence that religion is good for people, am I going to reject that evidence? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be consistent, I have to at least except the evidence that religion is good for people. So I started believing religion was good for people, right? Um, And so um, I talked with my, I mentioned that I'd been married during this and I got divorced, right? And we had a couple kids and neither of us was taking them to church, right? Well, I actually talked with their mom. I was still an ex-Mormon atheist and I talked to her about how I thought we needed to start taking the kids to church Hmm. because be good for them, well. you know. Um, I um, I wrestled a lot inside because I still felt okay. I'm going to publish this work, and I know that like this will like I'll have things that will be difficult for people, and so some people maybe the the last like like the the voice that they're going to have in their minds, right, from reading, right, when they lose their faith in the restoration, right, is going to be my voice. And so people are going to ask me, what do we do now? Yeah, right. And I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to tell them. Like I thought, I will have to become a much wiser, better person than I am right now, so I can know something useful and constructive to tell them, you know? Um, so anyway, I, um, I started, I'd been reading in positive psychology, um, and um, I became really kind of convinced of how beautiful and good gratitude is. You know, I read a book by um, Robert Emmons on gratitude, and um, I, and then I thought about well, who can I be thankful to for like life and the world and so on? And I thought well, I can be thankful to my parents, right, that I exist and so on. But I, um, I wrestled with having like a way to have a larger sense of gratitude. I wrestled with how to have a larger sense of meaning in life. Because ever since I was a teenager, the idea, like, like life having an ultimate meaning had been just a huge thing for me, right? Um, 
And I thought, is there any way to, without the supernatural, to have ultimate meaning in life? And I, um, <laughs> I was reading um, uh, in Skeptic Magazine. Oh, yeah. you, you know this? Oh, I love um, that magazine. <laughs> I still read it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, edited by Michael Shermer. Shermer yeah. right? mm-hmm. And so, for those who don't know, it's part of the skeptic movement, right? And Michael Shermer was a former evangelical. Yeah, as a young man, as he a young was man. an evangelical. Um, so the skeptic skeptic movement, they are skeptical of anything supernatural, and they're kind of skeptical of anything that's not sort of like mainstream science as well, like alternative health. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're skeptical of the supernatural for sure, ESP or religious ideas, afterlife, you know, anything that's not naturalism and sort of conventional science. Um, And so I was reading Skeptic Magazine, and um, there was an advertisement for a book called Biocosm by James Gardner, and the ad actually had an endorsement in it for the book by Michael Shermer, the editor of the magazine, right? Mm -hmm. And the had claimed that this book told like an ultimate meaning for the universe and human life without any appeal to the supernatural. Hmm. I was like, this sounds like a book for me, right? Because I had been hungering for some, something larger, right? Some larger meaning. And uh, I read it and the author, he did this amazing job of laying out the, the case uh, for the fine-tuning of the universe, for the existence of life. So this is where, like, you know, if the the universe is gravitational constant, we're just like one part in so many trillion or whatever different, like, like stronger, all the matter in the early universe would have clumped together into a giant black hole. If it were just that much weaker, like all the matter would have been dispersed sort of evenly throughout the universe with no galaxies, no, which means no stars, which means no planets with living things on them, right? And so, uh, and then it's not just that constant, there are several constants of the universe that are like this. So he quoted um, uh, from Britain's uh, astronomer Royale, um, who is one of the uh, co-discoverers of black holes um, in a book that he wrote called Just Six Numbers, where this guy talked about the fine-tuning of the universe and estimated that the chances that the constants of the universe could be set in such a way randomly, randomly set in such a way that we would exist, right? That, That any sort of conscious living things could exist uh, in the universe was one in ten to the two hundredth power. Now, if you understand how exponents work, like I know just I understand just enough about that number to understand that I don't really understand that number at all, right? The number of particles in the known universe is estimated to be ten to the eightieth power. Okay, so and he's talking about. 10 to the 200th power, right? So, in other words, the chances of us, of, of a universe where life could be existing, it's you're playing the cosmic lottery. Mm-hmm. So you have to pick 
out of all the particles in the universe, you have to pick the exact right one to win this lottery, but then that's not good enough. After that, that whole, that particle has a whole other universe in it, the same size, the same number of particles. You have to pick the right particle in that universe. And then it's still only a 10 to the 40th power chance. So that's one in a, you know, like trillion, you know, one in like a thousand trillion trillion or something like that. You know, it, it's like, in other words, like it didn't happen. We're not here. Mm -hmm. You know, like if this was random, like it, it, um, it um, so I was kind of blown away by the first half of the book where he's laying all this out. He even quotes unlikely um, people in making his case. Uh, he, he uses... He uses arguments from Richard Dawkins to undermine an alternative to, like, an explanation for fine-tuning that some naturalist had come up with, where there's a sort of selection processes through which baby universes could be born, mm -hmm. and he shows why, how that's full of holes and assumptions, and, like... Basically, he showed that the problem of fine-tuning was so many orders of magnitude greater than I had ever imagined, and he'd taken away my personal explanation for the fine-tuning, which is the one he critiqued using Richard Dawkins, right? Mm -hmm. So then I was just totally primed for the second half of the book. So what, what, what's the answer? What's the solution? What's he going to tell me next, yeah. you know? And so then his explanation is, our universe was fine-tuned for the existence of life by our distant, distant descendants. Not ancestors. Descendants. Okay. Okay. So he says time is a closed loop. So when the universe ends, apparently, it just goes to the beginning. Okay. Um, this doesn't, this isn't, first of all, like, I believe that time is a caused loop and the future is going to cause the past. But also, that doesn't explain why the whole thing is here and like that in the first place. Right, right. You know, and I remember thinking, he thinks this is more likely than God? Mm. I thought, I hadn't believed in God, but I didn't think that God was like preposterously unlikely like this, mm. you know? And so uh, I just, I was just sort of reeling. I had come to accept atheism as like the rational worldview, right? And so it had actually been quite difficult for me initially to accept being an atheist because when I grew up, atheist was a pejorative, especially my mom would talk about some people as atheists and to her that meant that they had like no moral center kind of, you know. Um, and so for me to accept a few years earlier, the label atheist had been difficult. Well, now it became difficult. I started believing in God. And it became difficult to leave the label of atheist because I had associated it so much with this is the rational right. thing yeah. to be, right? Um, and so um, I, um, uh, but I did. I came to believe in God. And initially, I thought there was some sort of deistic creator. And then I was I was living in Salt Lake. I was working in downtown Salt Lake out of the Family History Library um, and um, doing estate research. Um, and um, I started walking past a place that where a significant event had happened uh, when I was um, 18 years old. 
So back those visits that I would make to the LDS archives um, when I was 18, uh, I would take the bus um, down from my high school, East High, down to um, the church archive, well, down to downtown, walk to the church archives, and I would walk back to the bus stop um, and take the bus back home. And um, one day when I was crossing, the, the road is laid out differently now. They've got a median there now, but this was just on State Street next to what used to be like Crossroads Mall, I think ZCMI Mall. Um, so you've got South Temple here, and you've got State Street here. Uh, you've got this intersection. I was crossing the street at this crosswalk that was there where you just, uh, there was no light at the crosswalk. There were just lines on the road, and you just walk out, and the cars, the drivers see you, and they don't run you over, right? At least that's the implicit bargain here, right? Um, and so I had crossed this crosswalk a couple hundred times before I knew the drill, right? So I was about to step off the curb um, onto the road there, and I had a voice in my mind say, don't go out in front of that car, right? And there was a car that had just been rounding through the intersection from South Temple. It was like, they don't make these anymore. It was like, it was like a giant, it was a big boat of a car, like an Oldsmobile or a Buick or something huge, right? Like two and a half tons of steel. Um, and um, uh, so I... I walked partway out into the street. I just didn't walk into its lane. And there are a couple lanes. I just didn't walk into that car's lane. I stopped right before its lane and waited. And even though there was a kid in the crosswalk, the people didn't stop. They just kept going. And as the car passed in front of me, I saw through the passenger window, and there was a driver and a front seat passenger, and they were both bent down like this something had spilled on the floor or something. They were both scrambling, doing something down here. Right after he would have hit me, the driver pops his head up, looks up over the steering wheel, and then looks back down. Now, I, at the time, you know, I walked the rest of the way across the street in kind of a daze, thinking, wow, I just almost died, you know. And so for a long time, this had been part of why I had continued to believe in God. But at some point, I'd started thinking, well how do I know that I couldn't have like subconsciously seen something yep. funny mm -hmm. and then like why should I think that like I mean six million Jews died in the Holocaust God didn't save them right like why would I think that God would save me mm -hmm. and so I came to not believe that my own experience that saved my life was something beyond myself somehow I didn't know how but somehow I must have known something well now that I believed in a, that there was a mind behind the universe again, I started going, when I would walk to work, I started going to that spot and like looking at the traffic and I said, what can I see out of my peripheral vision and by that intersection? And the more I thought about it, there on the spot, tried to analyze things, the more I thought, there's no way that I knew anything about what was going to happen. Like, um... I, uh, I'd never had, in the couple hundred times I'd crossed this intersection before, I'd never had a feeling like, you know, uh, like this, you know, a voice tell me something like this. Um, when I do see things, like 
sometimes you do see things like in your peripheral vision that you don't fully pick up, but I've observed that what I do then is it calls my attention to the thing and I look at the thing. Well, I didn't do that. It wasn't, I, I wasn't noticing something funny going on here. I didn't look at the car, so I didn't see that the driver wasn't looking until the car was right in front of me, mm -hmm. you know? And, and other things. I, I thought about various things about the situation and I thought, no, my explanation doesn't work. So I thought, not only is there a mind behind the universe, but like this mind actually cares, right? This like saved my life. So then I started looking at religions again, trying to think, well, you know, um, what, uh, is there something that God wants me to do in my life? You know, and actually I was very drawn to the Baha'i faith. Okay. Um, and so they have a really expansive vision right, yeah. of truth and humankind. And so I became a Baha'i, right? Um, now, I had some questions about like the literal truth of certain things, but I thought this is like a beautiful faith. This is a good thing. Um, and I, I was very happy being a Baha'i. Excuse me. Um, and, then, uh, and then something, and then calamity struck something horrible my my youngest brother charles who was 25 died like out of the blue you know um and um i saw him the night before he died right and we talked and then the next day he was just gone and officially there's actually never been any explanation they did it um they did an autopsy they did a toxicology Right? Mm. He's gone. Mm. And so um, his funeral, well, his viewing was the saddest thing that I have ever seen in my entire life, right? There wasn't one person in that room who wasn't just completely torn to shreds, right? This was someone, you know, it's common when someone passes away, it's common to talk well of them. Everybody talked well of Charles before he died, you know, because he was just such a kind human being, you know, he loved to make people happy. And so at his viewing, I looked at my brother's body and my view of the afterlife was really hazy, right? Very vague. Um, there is a Baha'i view of the afterlife. I wasn't very well schooled in it. Um, but I knew that it didn't involve a resurrection. So I thought, well, the last time I'm going to see my brother's body, like hear his voice, like I've already had the last time I'll ever hear him. This is the last time I'll see him. Um, and uh, I just, it was, it was awful for me to try to handle that, you know? And that sent me searching again, spiritually. Mm. Um, was there, was there like um, something that had actually been revealed by God? Um, was there such a thing as a resurrection, right? Like I'd once believed in. And um, I, uh, I had a friend who um, had moved from Salt Lake out to a theological seminary in the Midwest, 
and he had invited me to come out there, I mean, to stay with him if I was out, were out there for a conference. So actually, just like several days after Charles died, you know, I was out there, I, I went to this conference, I stayed with this friend, and this friend um, is a very devout evangelical Christian, and he um, he took me to the the bookstore, the seminary that he taught at, and he offered to buy me any couple books that I wanted. And one that I got was N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God, right? this magisterial tome right, on everything in the Bible about resurrection and all kinds of things in the surrounding culture. And N.T. Wright makes some powerful arguments about what minimally had to happen right after Jesus' death. Uh, the apostles had to have actually seen and others had to have actually seen something, right? Uh, and the tomb had to be empty, right? He says there's no other way to explain early Christianity than, you know, these two things. And then he uses those two things to argue, you know, for the likelihood of the resurrection. And so I became convinced by this, right? And I, um, like... Um, I was uh, one night at the Family History Library. Um, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about my brother's death and, you know, afterlife. And um, when I thought, if I, I thought, if I take the resurrection seriously, what does it mean? And I thought, well, it means that God was reaching out to us in Christ, right? Like God wants, not only did God save my life, right, but God wants a relationship with me. And so um, I, I embraced Christ, you know. I um, actually went into a little side room that they have there for teaching family history classes, and I knelt and prayed, right, and I um, talked to God about, um, you know, I confessed my, my sins and my sinfulness, and um, just, um, you know, gave myself to God. And um, on the way home, walking home, I think I might have been walking past the Cathedral of the Madeline, actually, somewhere near there. I, was, I lived up in the avenues. But... Um, I just, I had this experience where, of love, where I just felt it was like wave of, after wave of peace just settling over me, right? And like, not peace like the absence of turmoil, but peace like a palpable presence, right? And the phrase actually from the King James Bible that I knew, right, the peace that passeth understanding came to me, and uh, that was what I felt, you know? And so um, I, I started. Uh, I started reading the New Testament. Right. I I had um, this friend actually had sent me like a translation of the New Testament. Another friend of mine from when I was growing up, who would become very, very devout evangelical Christian, um, had sent me a study Bible, which I started reading, and um, I. Um, you know, and as part of pursuing my life in Christ, I um, I remembered earlier in my life, like when I was at BYU, when I would read in the Book of Mormon, 
things about like you know relying wholly upon the merits of Christ and so on and so I thought well I thought well I I felt that I knew that Joseph Smith had just come up with the Book of Mormon and by the way my view of Joseph Smith at the time my model for him was like opportunist I thought he was an opportunist at this point and um, so I um, uh, I thought well I know that you know, Justice Smith was a scoundrel, but there are really, somehow, there are amazing things in the Book of Mormon, so maybe I'll read the Book of Mormon some. And I did. Um, I started reading it, parts of it devotionally, and then I got really confused. I was like, what am I doing? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. This doesn't make sense. And so uh, I, went, I went back at that point for a master's, and I started getting involved in, like, campus Christian events up at Utah State, um, and, um, um, I, um, to my surprise, um, each of these things was a shock to me. You know, when I was an atheist, there was no way that I was ever going to come to believe in God again, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, um, so I was studying, um, I continued my church history research, you know, uh, on Joseph Smith this whole time. And I, um, I was doing research on the Lost 116 Pages, um, and I was doing research, related research, on the first vision. So I was for, um, developing a paper for one of my classes I took from Philip Barlow um, on Joseph Smith's first vision as the origin of his seership. So I still thought Joseph Smith was an opportunist, right? But I thought... Like, how did Joseph Smith become a seer? What was the narrative mm -hmm. that he used of how he became a seer? Well, it's the first vision. It's his first vision. It's his first time that he has supernatural sight. And there was a little-known account, um, you know, not firsthand, but from someone who heard Joseph relate the first vision, where he says that, you know, Joseph said that at the beginning of the vision, God touched his eyes, and that's how he was able to see mm. these spiritual things and so on. And that connects with... You know, in the New Testament, Jesus healing the blind by touching their eyes and other things in Latter-day Saint scripture. And um, I was working on this paper and seeing that it connected some with the, what I was fleshing out, connected some with the story of the brother of Jared um, in the Book of Mormon and the story of Mosiah the First getting the interpreters, what we can know from the lost pages. And things started to come together in hmm. ways that for me, were absolutely wild. So, you know, this story of Mosiah the First, well, I, I argue in my book that it's Mosiah the First, Joseph Smith Sr., that Fayette Laugham, who's relating all this, he doesn't remember a single name from the Book of Mormon, not, not one, right? So he tells narratives, not names, okay? Um, but he tells a story about the uh, Nephites finding the Jardite interpreters. And there are, the, the guy who is led to them, is led to them by the Liahona, right, with the pointers, so it points the way uh, to this object. They are traveling somewhere in their promised land in the Americas, um, in this narrative, and they have a, um, a tabernacle, like a portable temple, like ancient Israel did, right? So, which suggests they were on an exodus, which is part of why I place it at Mosiah, the first exodus from the land of Nephi to the land of Zarahemla. Um, so they're... Uh, um, he's led to this object, the Leona leads him to this other object, and he doesn't know what the object is for, what it is or what it's for, 
And so he takes it, he carries it into the tabernacle. And once he gets in there, the voice of the Lord asks him, and I'm assuming, I'm inferring from behind a veil, since the presence of God was understood in the Bible, right, to be behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. Um, the voice of God asks him, what is that in your hand? Right? And then it says in this interview account, he replied, the man replied, he did not know but had come to inquire. Okay? Um, and the Lord says, put it on your face. And the man does, right? And it's, it's the spectacles, right? It's the interpreters. And he, now he can see anything, right? Um, and so at this point, the liahona stops working and they just use the interpreters. Well, um, for one thing, this has all kinds of connections with the story of the brother of Jared first getting the interpreters from the Lord, right? There's a dialogue between the Lord and the man that starts with a question, you know, that's uh, in that case, it's a question about the Lord's hand, right? What the man had seen. In this case, it's a question, you know, the Lord asks the man a question, or the man asks the Lord a question. No, sorry. Mixed up. The Lord asked the man a question um, about uh, uh, what's in his hand, right? Um, and uh, anyway, there's there's more that I lay out in the book, right? But but this uh, the man answering some of what goes on there, including the man answering that he did not know but had come to inquire. Like, I'd read this before, but for some reason, the text just hadn't hit me the way that it did. I thought, that's temple, right? Like, for people who've been through the endowment, like, this is... Fat Latham had never even... It's clear he'd never even read the Book of Mormon. He wasn't Latter-day Saint. He certainly hadn't been through the temple, you know? Like, so, why is he giving a narrative that's paralleling the endowment narrative? And um, I started seeing that things, that the Book of Mormon in various places, I think this is when it came together about the brother of Jared, that it, that was a sort of endowment. Um, and I'd even, I even saw that the things that I was looking at about Joseph Smith's eyes being touched um, in the first vision and so on, that this also, that there were endowment elements there. Well, I, th I had thought that Joseph Smith didn't know anything about the Nauvoo endowment until his Masonic initiation in 1842. And now I was seeing endowment stuff in the 1828, you know, Book of Lehi material and in the 1820, 1821 First Vision narrative. You know, I, I was dumbfounded. I thought, there's like, why would he be making this up if 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 this narrative is basically like the core of a ritual? He's making this up when he's like in his middle teenage years to thinking, you know, someday, you know, maybe in twenty years or so, I'm going to use this. It just didn't make sense to me. And the more I looked at the narrative, the more powerful things there were there. Um, for instance, um, I presented on this at a conference, and I'll be publishing on it. Um, so I, I and I can't fully do it justice here, but like um, the um, 
we're inclined to think of Joseph Smith's first vision as being entirely like in the grove, right? Like he goes to this grove, he prays, like, um, you know, the you've got the sacred, you know, descending to the grove, right? And then like Joseph is there um, for this experience. But Joseph says things that suggest something bigger, that the experience may not be confined to this little patch of woods. Um, he says things about how um, uh, my mind was taken away from the objects which surrounded me. He says, at the end of the experience, he says, um, when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, staring into heaven. What? Those don't sound like it's just all within this physical space, right? Uh, it sounds like spiritually he's like taken away from this space. Um, and then I was reading um, a sermon that Joseph gave in 1843 where he talks some about the first vision. And while he's talking about the first vision, he also throws in something about like any man who has gazed into the heavens knows, you know, that there are three grand personages there who hold the keys of power or something like this, right? And I thought, well, he's connecting his first vision with gazing into heaven. He's saying he has a heavenly ascent at the time of his first vision. So, so at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, you know, you've got Lehi um, has his own first vision experience. And what is that experience? A pillar of fire comes down from heaven and rests on a rock. And then Lehi gets transported up to heaven where he sees God sitting on his throne. Well, in Joseph's earliest account of the first vision, he actually says that the pillar of, what he later calls a pillar of light, he initially calls a pillar of fire. This is, of course, taken from Exodus, right? Um, but uh, the pillar of fire comes down to earth, right? Well, I think what is, I think implicitly heard, then Joseph has a heavenly ascent, and Joseph is taken up. And so what I started to see is this is the whole gospel plan, like the whole plan of redemption in miniature, right? So like the early Christians, right, Athanasius uh, formulated it this way, um, said um, you know, God became man in order that man might become God. So um, here you've got, you know, God is coming down to Joseph Smith's level to raise Joseph Smith up to God's level. Well, that's, that's the whole plan of redemption. That's what Jesus came to do, you know. And so I started thinking, wow, there are powerful things here. Uh, I realized I'd left the church thinking I have nothing to offer. That seemed clearly wrong. <laughs> um, and so I started sort of rethinking my own experiences uh, in the church, right? Like, had this worked in my life, you know, and it had. And so um, I initiated a process of returning to the church. Um, it happened really fast. Um, I showed up, right, to talk to a bishop whom I'd never met before, 
told him kind of like where I was. I was scared to death of this conversation. <laughs> I didn't know what the process would be like. I didn't know if there would be anything kind of punitive in it. I was, it was beautiful. Um, I, I had actually purposely written my resignation letter from the church in such a way as to prevent myself from ever trying to come back to the church. Mm. I, wanted to, I wanted to feel that I'd closed that gate forever. Right. Well, what did you write? And so I, I, I like bore my anti-testimony. Okay. I put like several, several really difficult problems from church history and scripture, things regarding polygamy and the book of Abraham and so on, right? And then I just said, like, I, I wrote, it's, it's not true, right? And, and other things. And like, I thought at the time, yeah, this will keep it so I'll never be able to go back. So when I... When I was trying to go back, the, the bishop got some clarification from the state president about what would be involved, and he said, well, we'll have to, you know, well, you'll have to revisit your resignation letter. Like, oh, no, right? Hmm. And I, I went and found that letter, and I read it, and then I cried. And I called the bishop crying, and I said, they're never going to let me back into the church. Hmm. And he said... Well, son, he said, um, if the church couldn't forgive, it couldn't be the Savior's church. Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I, um, I'm a more forceful writer than speaker. And so I'd crafted that letter very carefully. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to like overcome my writing self with my speaking self. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but then... Uh, the um, bishop he had me take the discussions. Okay, okay. it's fascinating um, and, and a good experience. And then he told me he wanted me to write a letter requesting readmission to the church and dealing with my exit letter. And I thought, ah, mm. this I can do. And I wrote that letter, and my second letter like ate my first letter whole. Mm. Right. Um, and uh, he had me come and read it to him and one of his counselors, and then uh, he immediately extended an invitation on behalf of the church for me to be um, rebaptized. And um, I was, um, like, I think it was the next Sunday. And um, I. Um, you know, uh, after, if, if you've been endowed, um, been through the temple, right, and you leave the church, then you also have to get a restoration of blessings, it's called, and I had no idea what that was going to be like. That happened over a year later, but that was also a beautiful experience, right? And I was, um, I was welcomed, I'd been participating a lot on message boards where I had been a sort of critic, right? And I posted to what was then like, I think the fair boards or I don't know, Mormon dialogue and discussion. And uh, I, I had like announcing my rebaptism and I had like 200 people come on to welcome me back into the church. And um, when I had the restoration of blessings, that involved a, um, you know, um, uh, the stake president just you know, getting a letter from the First Presidency that said, you know, quoted the Doctrine and Covenants saying, you know, to him that 
repenteth, I remember his sins no more. And then, um, you know, gave me a kind of blessing, right? And tell me my pronouncing that my blessings were restored and so on. And then um, when there's a restoration of blessings, um, like they actually take that person's church membership record and they put their original baptism date back on it so that, because it's going to have your original endowment date and so on, right? So if, if it had a later baptism date, people would know that you had been ex excommunicated mm -hmm. or resigned, right? They'd know you'd been out of the church for a while. But they put back your original baptism date. So, like, if I moved to a new ward and didn't tell anyone, you know, that I'd been out of the church, no one would ever know the difference, mm. right? And so the church, like, really does believe in forgiveness, mm. you know? Um, so... Yeah. Um. Oh, I'll tell you, Don, thank you so much for sharing this with me. I really appreciate it. And there's a lot to digest as an evangelical <laughs> because I'm, I'm kind of thinking, wow, he's, you mean you re embrace the whole thing. At first I was thinking, well, he got through, it, through the Book of Mormon, but then you got back into the endowment and then you did the uh, exaltation, becoming like a god. It's like you re re-engaged everything, brought it back back in. Yeah. And and I, see, so I see I see a lot of things differently and like um, um, that's that's exactly how it should be, right? Like I um, I think that there are some people who think that like I um, left the church and then went back to seeing things exactly the way that I had seen before I left the church. If you study Thing, if you study anything for thousands of hours, if you engage with some, anything in any way for thousands of hours and you come out seeing it exactly the way you saw it before, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. doing it wrong. Yeah. So, um, you know, for instance there, you know, when you talk about like exaltation or deification, like, um, you know, I started out seeing that um, in sort of the way that Bruce R. McConkie describes it or, or that, like, Brigham Young would have described it, right? There's like this endless chain of gods, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, and that's not how I understand it now, okay. yeah. right? I mean, that's not what I see in scripture, whether we're talking about the Bible or we're talking about restoration scripture. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but, but very much, I mean, I see that doctrine being there from literally day one, first vision, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, very interesting. It was, you know, this book, The Lost 116 Pages, I heartily recommend this book. Uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, do you have any last words you want to say to my audience? Um, I should have thought about last words. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess so, yeah. Because I think that people people deal with all kinds of faith journeys and faith wrestles, and they go all different directions, right? And I think that a couple things, maybe for one, um, just kind of in the direction of what you were saying earlier, Steve, of um, like tolerance, right? Like you don't really know what other people are going through. There were people when I was um, outside of the church and I was on the, the message boards who they thought that 
I was there for sinister purposes, you know, trying to like, just trying to destroy faith or something, you know, and they, they thought I was like a bad person, basically, and they, they would have totally given up on me, right? No, there were some people who weren't like that at all, right? But like, um, you know, don't, don't, let's not give up on each other and don't, and don't give up yourself, right? Like wherever you're at in your journey, right? It doesn't mean that that's like the, the final, the final stop, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount to learn in this world for all of us. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to learn, you know, um, but um, keep going. Keep going. All right. That's great stuff there. I want to just give a shout out to Greg Cofford Books, your publisher. Uh, I've developed a great relationship with them. I'm going to give a shout out to our bud, uh, Rick Bennett, who yeah, uh, loaned you, us the equipment while I'm here in Zion. We really appreciate it. And I just want to remind my viewers to uh, like and subscribe. And uh, don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new video is released. Uh, we're going to get through this pandemic together, folks. Um, peace and be well.